Hello and welcome to Clinical Pearls for Graduate Physios, the podcast that collaborates with experts in the world of physiotherapy to give upcoming and newly graduated physios key tips and tricks to help them in their everyday practice. I'm your host, Dion Kapnius, and today I'm joined by Joe Kemp to talk all about hip and groin pain. Joe has a PhD which focused around the hip and groin and also is a Principal Research Fellow at La Trobe Uni. And as such, I was so grateful to be able to speak with her. Joe gives a great breakdown of the assessment and treatment of the hip and groin. However, my top three clinical pearls for listeners are, firstly, the Doha Agreement is a fantastic way to differentiate different pathologies of the hip and groin through use of special tests, palpation, location of pain, and muscle testing. Secondly, we can ensure patient comfort during assessment by giving clear instructions, appropriately covering the patient, demonstrating on yourself, and asking them to cover their private areas. Lastly, it's crucial to strengthen other parts of the kinetic chain in your treatment of the hip and groin. And just a heads up, unfortunately, the audio quality is a little shaky at times in this one. I can't wait to get into this and I hope you enjoy. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast with me today. No problem at all. Um, no, my pleasure. Um, to, to start with, I guess we hear from time and time again that a good subjective uh, sets up the rest of the consult. Are there any key questions that you like to include to help differentiate uh, different pathologies of the hip and groin? Um, yeah, look, that's a really good question. And I guess probably the first thing to say is there's not really one any one question that really helps differentiate. You've really got to put all the different pieces of the puzzle together, but you can get a few clues from the subjective assessment. So where the pain's located actually gives you a lot of information. Um, so asking the patient to really accurately describe where they're feeling their pain can really can really help. So, for example, someone with hip osteoarthritis will usually have groin pain. Um, someone with pain coming from other hip conditions like um, FAI syndrome or dysplasia will um, often have pain in the sort of anterior hip or groin region. If someone's got pubic symphysis pain, then they'll often have it very centrally in the groin. If it's adductor pain, they might point further, you know, slightly down their leg. Um, Abdominal inguinal pain tends to sit well above the groin area. So, um, you know, um, gluteal tendinopathy, you tend to get pain on the outside of the hip. So there's lots of, you know, so the location of the pain is a really, really good starting point. Also asking them about the um, mechanism of pain can give you some good clues as to whether it's likely to be something that you can get as an acute injury versus something that's more of a, a gradual onset injury. Um, so, for example, you can, you know, something like adductor pain, you may get that as an acute tear. So they'll often say, I was running and changed direction and suddenly I felt something go. Whereas pain that comes from um, the hip joint itself or from the pubic region will be more of a gradual onset. So they'll complain that over a period of weeks or months they've started to um, notice their pain. And then questions um, around things like clicking and catching can sometimes give you some good information. If it's coming from the hip joint itself, you'll often... Um, have they, they may complain of pain, you know, of clicking or catching or feelings of giving way or other mechanical symptoms. So, um, and then where, what time of day they feel their pain can give you good information as well. So, if it's a um, if it's a more of an arthritic pain, they may have pain, the stiff, sorry, stiffness first thing in the morning when they get up. Where um, and you know, chronic sort of inflammatory conditions similarly, they can have pain first thing in the morning. Problems with tendons will often sort of warm up and start to feel better as someone exercises, but then afterwards they could have a lot of pain. So I guess the sort of presentation of pain through the course of the day can give you um, important information as well. 
Well, I mean, that's heaps in there. I think just even that is amazing to sort of pick apart um, so many different pathologies that can present in the hip and groin. It seemed like a lot of what you're describing there um, comes back to the Doha agreement and sort of as a means of differentiating different conditions. Can you go into a little bit more about that and talk about how the Doha agreement helps to form a really good assessment? Yeah, so look, the Doha agreement was developed on purpose to really help give clinicians a clear framework to be able to sort of categorise um, people's pain that come from the hip and groin region because prior to that there were so many different names of all sorts of different things and what Doha really tried to do was to simplify it and just classify things um, into some really distinct categories, recognising that there's often overlap, so someone could have one or two or three of the different clinical entities, but there's usually one that was the main the main driver. And so Doha classified pain into being adductor-related pain, um, hip, hip flexor or psoas-related pain, abdominal or inguinal-related pain, pubic-related pain um, or hip joint-related pain, and then also obviously looking at other causes, so things like, you know, red flags, referral from the lumbar, lumbar spine and that sort of thing. And so um, in terms of the objective assessment, being able to think clearly that um, this is, you know, it's, it's probably going to be one of those five clinical entities really helps you structure your assessment and, and use the tests, the, the appropriate tests accordingly. And then it's important to understand, I guess, the limitations of the test. So the sensitivity and specificity of the test. So Sensitivity being whether, if, and if it's a negative test, it means they probably don't have the condition and specificity, meaning it's a good diagnostic test. So meaning if it's a positive test, they likely do have the condition. So probably a really good place to start is just that pain location. So asking what we talked about before, where are you feeling the pain? Because generally they'll point to it and that gives you a lot of a lot of really good information about what the likely cause of the pain is. And then if we start to think about those different clinical entities, if we're thinking adductor-related pain is a really really common cause of groin pain, doing the um, adductor squeeze test um, or the Copenhagen squeeze test, it's some, sometimes called, is a really good starting point. So that's where the where you put your two fists um, between the patient. They've got their hips and knees flexed. You put your two fists between their knees and you ask them to squeeze as hard as they can and you see whether or not the test reproduces their pain. And that's a really good um, – that test has a high specificity. So what that means is that if – that test reproduces their pain, you can be reasonably confident that their pain is probably either adductor-related or pubic-related pain. So that's a good test for ruling in pathologies. The hip special test, so particularly the flexion-adduction internal rotation tests, where you bend someone up into flexion and then across into adduction and then internally rotate their hip, turn their foot out, um, that has a test has a really high sensitivity. So what that means is if you do that test and it's negative, so a negative test being it doesn't reproduce the patient's pain, then you can be pretty confident that their pain is not hip-related pain. So that's a really good test to help rule out hip-related pain. Palpation really helps as well. So if you palpate the pubic symphysis and it reproduces their pain, then that gives you confidence that it's pubic-related pain. Similarly, if you palpate the um, iliopsoas and it reproduces their pain, that can give you confidence that that's the cause of their pain. And then resisted, um, doing some uh, resisted muscle tests, so like doing resisted hip flexion, if that doesn't reproduce their pain, then it's probably not hip flexor pain. Similarly, if you do a Thomas test where you put the hip flexor on stretch and it doesn't reproduce their pain, then you can be pretty confident it's not hip flexor. 
um, related pain and then asking them about things like coughing and sneezing and palpating through the inguinal region. If that's all negative, then you can be pretty confident it's not um, it's not inguinal related or abdominal related pain. So sort of you putting all of those tests together can really help give you some guidance as to whether it's whether their pain is coming from one of those five clinical entities um, that the Doha Agreement refers to. That's great. Um, and I think breaking it down like that really makes it simplified. And the ability to, I mean, there's a lot going on around the hip and groin and just being able to use each test and go through it systematically through palpation, special tests and specific muscle testing. Um, I think that's a really valuable lesson for new grads to be able to break down and try to differentiate each condition. Um, you spoke about before um, in terms of ruling out red flags or other sinister pathologies. Um, what are some key questions to rule out um, these more sinister pathologies that might need further or immediate medical attention? Yeah, so look, um, I guess there's the sinister pathologies. That, so there's things which are still musculoskeletal pathologies, so things like stress fractures are a big one. And then there's the other non-musculoskeletal pathologies, so things like cancerous tumours and, and those sorts of things. In terms of stress fractures, asking questions around um, their history of load recent load train and training increases can give you a lot of good information. So if they've had a sudden rapid increase in training load and they've got this diffuse pain that gets worse while they keep exercising, that can often be indicative of a, either a bony stress response or a stress fracture. Um, also understanding the athlete's general um, dietary history can help. So you'll often, um, if, if someone appears to be in what we would consider an energy deficient state where they um, perhaps not you know, are undernourished in some way, then that obviously puts them at a greater risk of having bony injuries like like stress fractures and also the type of sport that they do. So, um, and in female athletes, asking about things, asking about things like menstrual cycle and that, you know, if they don't have a regular menstrual cycle, then that can be an indicator of sort of this energy deficiency, which again tends to be related to stress fractures. So, um, that's so that's sort of I guess the most common musculoskeletal red flag type condition and then the other one obviously the big one that we don't want to miss is whether if it's potentially some sort of um, malignancy or tumor now having a history of um, if you think asking people about the whether they have a history of cancer is really important so a lot of the gynecological cancers and breast cancer and prostate cancer will often metastasize into the hip joint or into the hip area. And so asking them about their history, do you, you know, have you ever had cancer before? If so, what sort of cancer um, can really help you, I think, be conscious and aware that, that, that the hip is a common site of metastases for those particular cancers. And then in women, being conscious of gynecological um, conditions because um, gynecological conditions can often refer to that same sort of area where you get pain in that lower abdominal and groin pain. So just asking about their menstrual cycle, you know, whether it's regular, whether they've had gynecological problems in the past can help sort of highlight the likelihood of, of that being a problem in them. And then the other big one are sort of bladder and bowel conditions as well. So again, they can cause pain in that area. So asking about their... Um, you know, their, their bladder habits and their bowel habits and whether they've had um, a history of issues in that area can really help. But I guess the biggest I guess the biggest sort of tip is that if someone if if someone's come to see you and things just don't add up and it doesn't seem like it's a musculoskeletal problem, 
or if you've treated it as a musculoskeletal problem for several weeks and they're just not improving in spite of everyone's best efforts, I think it's just really important in those patients where the pieces don't quite add up that you refer them um, as soon as possible to get their red flags checked out. And I think the other thing to say is that if I have someone who I think would have one of these red flag things, I'll always refer them to their doctor and get the doctor to organise scans and things. And the reason for that is that if you organise a scan and it does come back, say, with the cancer, it's your responsibility because you've organised the scan to tell the patient that and to give them their diagnosis and talk to them about treatment. And as physios, that's way, way, way outside our scope of treatment. And even as a really experienced physio, I would never want to be doing that. So I think as a new graduate, you absolutely do not want to be putting yourself into that position. So if you ever think there's a red flag, the most responsible thing to do is to write a really good letter to the doctor explaining that but leave it up to the doctor to be the person to organise the scans, organise whatever tests appropriate and talk to the patient about their diagnosis because that's something that I think as physios we just don't even want to get, we don't want to put ourselves into that position. That's a really good point and it's a really good practical tip as well. To I, I was, When I spoke to uh, Peter O'Sullivan about back pain, this is one of the uh, points he mentioned as well to either refer on to in the case of, let's say, cauda equina, straight to ED or refer on to the doctor if it's something like this um, where they might need a, a follow-up scan. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. When I spoke to Peter about this, he sort of mentioned that it's not only that you ask these red flag questions in the initial, that like you said, if you've been following this down the path and you think it's related to, well, after a while, you don't think it's musculoskeletal anymore, that it's important to re-ask these questions and check in um, is that also a really important point, do you think, as well? Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you have someone and you ask them the first time and that you don't really get any answer, but then you fail to get the response to treatment that you're expecting, then, yeah, absolutely, re-ask the questions. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Um, talking more about assessment now, we know that, you know, around the hip and groin region, it can be quite a delicate region, especially for new grads who haven't had such, you know, heaps of hands-on uh, practice and skills. Do you have any key practical tips for new grads to ensure that patients feel comfortable throughout the assessment process? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing is that um, it's really important to keep patients sort of clothed. Uh, often, I think there's a tendency to think we have to, ex- you know, expose the area that we're looking at. But when you when you're looking at um, somebody with pain in that area, then keeping some sort of clothes on them. And the other thing I think is not to just leave them in their underpants. So people get really uncomfortable. Like, I mean, I would hate, you know, lying there in your underpants and you're moving your leg and twisting it in all different directions. You, people get nervous about, is something going to pop out that shouldn't pop out or, as you know, and so having shorts on hand is really important because you can do all of the assessment that you need to do through shorts. You don't need to have someone in their underpants or, you know, undress. I think leaving shorts on. Um, and then I think being really clear and explicit in your explanation. So say to tell the, the patient exactly what you're going to do before you're going to do it and demonstrate on yourself. So you can say, I'm about to have a feel of this bone here that sits, you know, in your pubic region. So it's it's just here. I'm going to start at your belly button. If there's anything I do that is uncomfortable, then please let me know. Um, I think the other thing I like to do is ask patients to put their hand over their genital area and keep their hand there. And what that does is then you know exactly where everything is. You know what's under that hand and so you don't need to go near it. And in particular cases of male patients, nothing's going to pop out that shouldn't pop out and that they have covered up any area that, that you might not want you to go near. 
Yeah, so I, I think I might have cut out a little bit of that, but that's okay. Um, I think the key point to summarise there is just clear explanations, using shorts on hand or a towel if you've got it handy, and I guess making it really um, – also asking the patient to place their hands over, over their um, genital region as well to sort of summarise that. So um, I've heard from um, a few different resources and people that the deep rotators of the hip – have been likened to the rotator cuff muscles of the shoulder in terms of their ability to stabilize the hip um, and optimize function. Um, is this comparison true? And if so, what are some uh, practical examples of how we can target these muscle groups? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. Um, and I think the sort of rotator cuff of the hip was probably a concept that was fashionable maybe five to ten years ago. We've actually probably moved a little bit away from that now, but they're not really any more important than the other larger major muscle groups around the hip. And when we look at impair, physical impairments in people who have diff pain and pathology, it's not just those little small deep muscles that are impaired. They're often impaired in a larger muscle group. So through the hip adductors, the abductors, hip flexors, um, hip extensors and gluteals, and then also quadriceps, trunk, etc. So rather than probably just focusing on one small muscle group, what we want to try and do is the strength and function of the hip muscles as a whole. And you can be a little bit more specific in that some conditions tend to, you probably need to focus a little bit more. So, for example, uh, someone who has um, hip pain, you know, labral tear, adductor muscles and getting them strong, hip flexors and hip extensors are really important. We tend to think of them as just being rotators, but the quadratus femoris, for example, acts as a hip external rotator and also hip extension. So if you're going to target that muscle, just doing external rotation exercises, you may actually get better value doing hip adduction strengthening exercises or hip extension strengthening exercises. So um so I think, I think what we want to try and do is move away from a concept of strengthening a muscle up and thinking more about strengthening up a movement pattern and a group of muscles that do that particular movement or that particular function. That's really good. And I think that's a, a really good takeaway as well that we can't, you know, put all our, big, all our eggs in one basket trying to focus on these small muscles when we can maybe instead put a bit more work into maybe creating a bit more global strength around the hip on that as well, um, how important is it to optimise the strength and function in other areas of the kinetic chain when it comes to treating the hip and groin? Yep, that's a, um, that's a really, really good question. And I think it's something that we've probably always been quite good at doing, say, for example, someone who has a knee injury, but we sort of tend to forget about it with the hip. So it's really important. So if you're thinking, if we sort of start above and work our way down, trunk muscle strength is really critical in these patients. So the trunk um, and trunk muscles control the pelvis and the position of the pelvis and the lumbar spine and half of the hip joint sits in the pelvis so the acetabulum is part of the pelvis so strengthening up trunk muscles is, is absolutely critical in these patients and when, when I say trunk I don't just mean like deep abdominals I mean the whole you know the whole trunk including back muscles and the larger abdominal muscles etc and then moving down um, we know that people with hip pain seem to have reduce quadricep strength and quadricep function so strengthening up quads is really really important um, and hamstrings as well but quads in particular and then moving further down the kinetic chain calf strength can be really important for these patients the calf acts as a big shock absorber and if the calf if calf functions reduce then that can have impacts further up the kinetic chain to the hip and then looking at ankle dorsiflexion range of motion is important so people who have a stiff ankle stiff into dorsiflexion 
what they tend to do when they're either walking or running forward is rather than the shin crossing the ankle, if, if the ankle is stiff and the shin can't sort of translate all the way through, what they tend to do is they tend to hitch their hip and sort of go into, a, into sort of an adducted and internally rotated position. And if someone has hip pain, then um, that can be quite a painful and provocative position. So just by improving the ankle flexibility can take the hip out of that sort of more impinged position as well. So looking at the flexibility of the ankle is also really, really important. Sorry to cut in, guys. Here's just a quick word from our partners at Foundations of Clinical Exercise. We understand how daunting those first few years out of uni can be. You feel vulnerable and lack confidence when treating patients. This is where Foundations of Clinical Exercise can bridge the gap from student or new graduate and build you into a confident practitioner. Our presenters have extensive experience working in elite sport. Our learning experience combines the science with the art via video content and opportunities to clarify and reinforce learning through Mentor Question Week and the final masterclass. Head to www.clinicalxfoundations.com.au to sign up. We look forward to helping you become an elite practitioner. Now, back to the show. That's fantastic. And I think it really encourages a mindset not to just be so focused on just because there's pain in this one region that all our treatment and everything that we do has to revolve around this one area, that instead we can um, maybe take a more holistic approach and think about well, what exactly is going on further down, what's going on the calf, what's going on the quads, do they have a role, are they impaired at the moment? Um, so I think that's a really good practical tip. To finish up, what single piece of advice do you think all new grads need to hear? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think probably... Um Firstly, don't be scared to try out different um, areas of physio. So you, the choice you make at the start in the area that you're working in doesn't have to be your final, your final destination. So make sure you try lots of, lots of different things, you know, lots of different areas of physio. If you have an opportunity to get a job, you know, a rotating position in a hospital, it can be a really nice way to try out different areas of physio. But if you go straight into private practice as well, that's great too. So, you know, Again, take as many different opportunities as you can. Use, um, try and get as much mentoring and support as you possibly can because one, when you're a new grad, you're really only starting out and you're not expected to have all the answers. And I think if you go into a job where you're pretty much just left on your own and you're just expected to churn through patients and not given any mentoring or support, you're going to burn out really quickly because you'll, you'll feel really, you'll know that you're not doing the best you can um, and it's, it's a really good way to end up hating what you do so make sure that when you're going into a position be really clear and ask what sort of um what sort of continuing education and mentoring and debriefing of complex patients and that sort of thing there is so um i think that that is the number one thing is getting as much support as you can and don't be afraid to ask questions as well so asking questions of um of other colleagues and physios and looking things up if, if someone, if a patient comes in and you're completely stumped with what to do, it's actually okay just to say to the patient, look, I'm going to just let you get changed here. I'm just going to duck out for a minute and get a couple of bits of equipment and go out and have a quick look through your textbook or quickly look something up if you need to before you come back in because, you know, when you're a new grad, you're going to get all sorts of different patients coming through the door. And, you again, you're not expected to know the answer to absolutely everything, so it's quite okay just to leave the room um, you don't have to say to the patient that's what you're doing, but leave the room and quickly look something up if 
if you need to, or ask colleagues you know with more experience to help. To help, I still ask colleagues for help on difficult patients. So feel free to you know get as much help as you can. That's really reassuring, um, and I think that I think that's probably one of the more daunting things for a lot of new grads is this prospect of having to know you know everything or feeling like they have to know every condition possible and be able to straight away pick apart that. So I think that's really comforting to hear that from you know someone with as much experience as yourself that it's okay to not know it all and to um, take your time with these things and to use resources and colleagues and bounce off uh, ideas off other people. Um, that's really good to hear. Um, just the last question, if people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? Um, yep, so um, people are welcome to email me through Latrobe Uni. So my email address is j.kemp at latrobe.edu.au. Um, I'm on Twitter, so my Twitter handle is at Joanne L. Kemp. And you can also look up our um, our Research Centre um, blog page. has a lot of information. So at Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, if you, if you put that into Google, it'll take you to our Research Centre's um, blog page as well, which has a lot of information too. Great. Um, thank you again so much, Joe. I've learned so much from this. Um, it's been really good to hear how you pick apart each different area, each part of the subjective, and there's been so many really good key practical tips that people can take away and apply hopefully straight away um, if they're starting out in new jobs or in placement. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries, Dion. Thanks for having me and best of luck.